Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, Teresa Tam dangles a carrot, letting kids play might be child abuse somehow, and budgets, not just about money, but tools to fight racial inequity. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. It is great to have you aboard this program. I come bearing fantastic news. The lockdowns are on their way out. The restrictions are on their way out. Canadians are once again going to be walking around free with COVID vanquished. Yes, this is what Theresa Tam has said, that federal modeling data show lockdowns have slowed the spread of COVID, that a less restrictive summer is on its way. But there's a little bit of a catch. If 75% of Canadians have their first vaccines, or if 20% of Canadians have their second vaccine, then we might see some restrictions. Okay, I take away the celebration, I take away the jubilance, and when you read these headlines, it sounds like the federal government has laid out some sort of a concrete reopening plan. But let's listen to what Dr. Theresa Tam, the Chief Public Health Officer of Canada, actually said. When I say the summer, first of all, it's based on vaccine supply. We're going to have a lot of vaccines coming up next week. There's going to be a big delivery. And so if the supplies continue as projected and everybody rolls up their sleeves, at least, you know, in, in these kind of percentages, that is when you can, um, and, and you lift measures when 20% have received the second dose. It could be anywhere, um, you know, from somewhere in that sort of, I don't know, mid-July to August kind of time frame. And But but even then you have to be cautious and not sort of just, just lift everything. You're going to lift things in stages and see what happens. So that was about as unequivocal as it can get. It's that, well, you know, maybe if this many people roll up their sleeves, as she said, we maybe could see by mid-July or August some easing, but it depends. I mean, this is, again, proof that there are... I've often talked about the moving goalposts of Canada's public health guidance. Right now, there is no goalpost. There is no end zone. We're just supposed to keep running and running and running like Forrest Gump, not having any idea where we're going or how long we're going to be doing it and without the laughs along the way. Alan Silvestri, if you want to score the soundtrack to Canada's public health guidance like you did, the actual Forrest Gump soundtrack, go wild, but I I don't want to watch this movie. I'm waiting for it to end. Because what we have now is the government not only continuing to fearmonger about a lot of aspects of this, but not giving any clear path to reopening. And this is a, a very critical dilemma, because on one hand, the government's saying that everyone has to get vaccinated. On the other hand, as Justin Trudeau indicated a couple of weeks ago, He said that, well, even with vaccines, we're still going to have some restrictions and so on and so forth. And even this latest round of modeling, uh, which is basically the government's way of of just saying, here are some random numbers that we think tell a story, despite the modeling being more often wrong than it is right. We have the government using this modeling and using these data to say that they have a plan and that they have things under control when they actually don't, not even close. But even with this, Let's look at what they're actually proposing if the volume of people they want to get vaccinated get vaccinated. 
So this is a slide from the federal government's modeling presentation where they say that high uptake of the first vaccine dose will influence whether it will be safe to lift restrictive public health measures this summer. Now, here's where we talk about the media telling a story that isn't necessarily what the officials were actually saying. Because when I hear restrictive public health measures, I think of basically all of the public health measures that are telling people how to live their lives, what they can do, where they can go, what can stay open, and so on. But if you look in the fine print at the bottom, physical distancing, mask wearing, and other personal protective measures alongside current levels of testing and tracing would be maintained even when restrictive public health measures are lifted. So they're saying that forced social distancing, mask wearing, whatever these other personal protective measures they're talking about are, are not in fact the restrictive measures they're talking about lifting. When they say restrictive measures, they're only talking, it sounds like, about lockdowns, about about actual shutdowns, about stay-at-home orders, enforcement, all of these things, which, by the way, the federal government has said repeatedly are not within its purview because it's provincial jurisdiction. But nevertheless, even if the provinces go along with this, what the federal government is actually saying here is that the new normal is in fact something we need to accept. That even when we're supposed to be happy that three quarters of the population have been vaccinated, we are still going to be wearing masks. We're still going to have plexiglass barriers between booths at restaurants, concerts probably not coming back, live shows, all of these things. So it it only really sounds like they're trying to dangle as a carrot in front of people the summer that we had last year, the summer of 2020, which felt a little bit more normal, maybe relative to how it had been earlier, but was not something we would want to live with as though it were the new normal. And you know what? The big problem that I have with this is that the government is putting so much stock in mask wearing. I want to tell you a story about mask wearing because in, I think it was June or July, I might be wrong about the specific date, but some point last summer, I was in uh, Calgary, Alberta for a Freedom Talk conference put on by our our good friend of the show, Danny Hozak. And at the time, larger events in Alberta were allowed. They could have, I think, 50 people per room and they could stack different rooms together. So I, I think the conference had 100 or 150 people. And I got on the plane from where I live in Ontario to Alberta. And by the time I returned to London, Ontario... The local government in my city had put a mask mandate in. So at the time, they were just starting to see a little bit of an uptake, an uptick on the so-called second wave. And they said, all right, we have to mandate masks. Masks were recommended at the time, but not required. By the time I got home, masks were required in public places. Now, this is something that I find to be tremendously important because this so-called mask mandate has actually seen us through the second and third waves by the government's own admission. So how they think that masks work when the very worst parts of the pandemic have happened while masks have been required in virtually all public fora, workplaces, grocery stores, airplanes, buses, and and so on. Now, the logical response to this from mask proponents is, well, those uh, upticks have happened because people aren't following the orders. Well, even so, it's proof that the mask mandate is not, in fact, working. And as much as everyone likes to go on about, oh, those evil anti-maskers, they are are relatively small in number. I I have been to grocery stores, on airplanes, I've been to different places, and I, I actually have not 
seen at all anyone in these venues not wearing a mask in the last uh, eight months or 10 months or however long it's been. And the reason I bring that up is to say that the mask mandate has not worked. So the idea that this is something with which we should be saddled in perpetuity, something that should become a permanent fixture of Canada's approach to public health, it is actually quite a significant step away from where we should be going, which is returning to the normal way of doing things. And there are far too many people now, including those driving government policy, who want us to believe that the old normal is just a distant memory and we need to start adapting to our lives as though COVID is endemic and, and taking a permanent approach, a permanent aspect of this anyway, and prolonging it and never getting away from it. And that's what I see coming from this modeling projection here that we are to understand the government is telling us that they might lift some of the severe restrictions if three quarters of the population is vaccinated, but we're still going to have masks, we're still going to have social distancing, all of these things that they basically want us to start accepting are just a part of life right now. And that's not something that I'm prepared to do. In fact, I, I don't think that's something most people, I would hope, are prepared to do. And this is where we talk about the fact that not only have the goals shifted and the priorities shifted tremendously through this, but there has been no clear plan. And this allows things along the way to be very politicized. You may remember on last week's show, I talked about the travel ban. And the point that I raised, which was received better than I thought it was, quite frankly, was that by the time the government talks about wanting to ban flights from India or Pakistan, as it did like an hour after my show came out, it's already too late because weeks earlier, the so-called variants had been detected in the dozens in multiple provinces. So there's no real point in saying that the double Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle virus was something that was going to come on a plane and that was the only way we could get rid of it by banning those flights which by the way did not stop people to come from India and Pakistan someone in India just has to lay over in England or lay over in Frankfurt and all of a sudden there's no issues so the idea that these things are, are being passed off as good policy is proof that the government is continuing more than a year into this to just make things up as they go to make things up as they go without any indication of what the criteria for reopening will be. And that's so important because a lot of these emergency orders and the border shutdown between Canada and the U.S. are implemented in four-week increments and 30-day increments, and they're just extended every 30 days. And the whole point of emergency legislation is that you have to put a sunset clause into it. The rationale being that you don't want these things to require governments to actively strip these powers from themselves. But it's now become so rote to continue to renew this that it is, it is as though these things are permanent fixtures in legislation anyway. Right now, the fact that the border is shut down between Canada and the U.S., despite the exemptions for cross-border trade, is such a norm that it will just become very easy to unquestioningly extend that every single time it comes up. It was just extended most recently, a couple of days ago. I have no doubt that in May it will be renewed again and again and again. And it wouldn't surprise me if the Canada-US border is shut down for at least two years before it is reopened. 
And I'm a believer in the fact that no country has a legal obligation to admit others to it. So I'm of the mindset that if the U.S. wanted to shut its borders to Canadians, I would oppose it, but it would have the legal right to do it. So this is not about forcing countries to surrender their sovereignty. It's about understanding the long-standing tradition that Canada and the U.S. have a border that is there for security, yes, that is there for control of goods, yes, but that basically fosters a spirit of travel cooperation between these two countries. Cross-border integration between Canada and the U.S. is a way of life, especially if you are like the 90% of Canadians who live within, I think it's 100 miles of the U.S. border. There's a library in, I forget the Canadian city, but in the American city is North Troy, Vermont. It's a library and an opera house that actually sits on the border. So you can go in one door and enter from Canada and you can go out the other door and exit into the United States and vice versa. And I've always thought that the U.S. should just do like a vaccine clinic on its side of the opera house in, I think it's North Troy, Vermont. It might be Derby, Vermont or something like that. And and all the Canadians who want to get vaccinated and can't because of Trudeau's plan can get American vaccines uh, in uh, the rural New England and then head on home back through the uh, way they came in. But the whole point of this is that the government has not provided any reopening plan. You've got people like Doug Ford in Ontario who are calling on the government to do more to secure the border as though the border is not already closed. And let me tell you something. I get people emailing all the time saying, well, what about the international flights coming in, this flight, that flight? And they're pointing to all these flights that are coming in from China, from elsewhere in the world. Let me say something, because I was at Pearson Airport a couple of weeks ago, and I wish I got a picture of it, but I looked up at, there's like a four-panel arrivals or a departures board that is in this one part of the terminal. It's huge. And actually, it might, no, it might be eight panels, because each uh, vertical dimension has two levels to, on it. And all of the flights for the entire day were on one of these eight panels. So the idea that you can point to flight manifests and say, well, these international flights are coming in is not really evidence of anything. Flights are virtually non-existent, and the people that are on those flights are people who have a legal right to enter Canada. And yeah, there are exemptions for to the travel ban for uh, people that have extended family here, people that have essential work to do here. But most of the people on these flights are Canadian citizens coming home. And I refuse to go along with any plan that bars citizens of this country from re-entering the country. We have a two-week quarantine, which is meant to basically let people exhaust the virus from their system if they have contracted it while they've been abroad. But the reality is that Canada is right now more dangerous than a lot of the places from which people are coming. Because elsewhere in the world, people have eased restrictions, they've opened up because they have more of their population vaccinated. The threat to Canada is not, by and large, coming from travel. And when you do have situations like the double teenage mutant virus that have uh, come in from India, these are relatively isolated, and they don't take away from the fact that travel-related cases are about 2% of the overall caseload in Canada. And sacrificing the rights of Canadians, which is what people calling for more restrictive border measures are doing, because at a certain point, that's all that's left. 
to go after Canadian citizens and their right to return home, which Australia did, and by the way, stranded thousands of Australian citizens abroad because they couldn't enter their own country. I won't do that, certainly not for 2% of the caseload, when 98% is coming from people doing things in the country. Community spread, workplace, etc. And the whole point of this is that I've been calling since the very beginning for an approach to the pandemic that puts science first and doesn't take these universal restrictions that are, not, that are going after everyone when we can isolate where transmission is taking place. And Patty Haidu, Politburo Patty, the health minister, had said this the other day. In fact, just hours before the government banned flights from India and Pakistan, health officials were saying that, oh, well, you know, targeted travel bans don't work. Now, in this case, I agree with them, even if they are contradicting themselves. But what was interesting is that Patty Haidu said, well, you know what, we've got universal uh, we've got universal measures because we can't target these things. And these are my words, not hers. But she was basically saying that we can't play whack-a-mole with all of these international areas. And I'm inclined to agree, unless you are prepared to say that Canadian citizens do not have the right to return to their country. But more importantly, the Canada-U.S. border is where you have people that are exempt from quarantine, exempt from testing, because they work in cross-border trade, they are truckers, they are doing important things that, again, have always had them going back and forth. And I would again say, do you want to sacrifice the Canadian supply chains, the food you have on your grocery store shelves, by tightening what is already a restricted border even more? It's easy to step up and say, oh, but flights are coming in, but oh, the board people are still coming across the border. Yeah, it's easy to say that. But the exemptions that are there are very minimal. And I don't think the people calling for more border restrictions and more travel restrictions have thought through what the implications of those measures will be. We've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. The big theme of the program over the last couple of weeks has been the level of enforcement that exists, especially in Ontario, but we're starting to see it elsewhere, especially in British Columbia, on these stay-at-home orders, emergency orders, and, and so on. And one of the big challenges that we've seen in Ontario was, of course, the provincial government issuing this directive that police could stop and question people without any evidence, then they backtracked on it. And the caveat was that police in Ontario can now only question people and demand information if they have reason to suspect they are engaging in what might be ooh, an illegal gathering. I know it's the big crime now being part of an illegal gathering. Well, last weekend on, I believe it was Sunday, there was a group of families that had been, and I don't know the details of it, but they were playing with their children at a local park in Havelock, and the OPP came by after getting what they said were three or four calls. Here's a little bit of that exchange posted by one of the moms on Facebook. I'm not here to sit and lay a bunch of tickets. If it was something that was to continuously happen, it is an option. No, and, and, and so that is an option we can go down, and we don't want to have to go to that down those options with anyone, because everyone wants to enjoy themselves. It's getting nice weather. It's and we're not doing time. anything wrong. Like, this isn't an organized... No, but we're like, I drove by, and I saw people here and there separated, so I didn't stop. Like, I drove by, like, half an hour ago. Yeah, it was like, easy. It looked fine. But then we got three or four calls. So 
tell them to. Uh, Nothing better to do than have us to complain. Yeah, it's your job to come out. Yeah. yeah. That's all I need is your name and date of birth so I can get your guys. Why do you need the data now? No. That's just the law. That's got nothing to do with emergency orders. I don't feel like I need to give my information. Now, I want to say it sounds like this woman or one of the women whose voices can be heard was known to police. I don't know if she's been an organizer of anti-lockdown rallies. Not that that matters, but it sounds like there may have been a deliberate provocation there, in which case I still wouldn't hold it against her, but I, I just want to be transparent about it. However, none of that justifies this. So, and, and for some of these situations, we're being asked to call CAS to advise them as well. Are you f***ing kidding me? Oh my God. <laughs> I know, sir. Wow, so my kids playing outside? I am. So it's, it's, it's something that we have been asked to do. So I need to make sure you guys are We're going to get a CAS call because we're taking our kids out to be healthy and fresh air. For some people, have a view. How is that neglect? I know it is, but I don't understand how that's neglect. Yeah, go ahead, play, do whatever you like. So that's all I have to enjoy yourself. For some of these situations, we are being asked to call CAS to advise them. Now, that is Children's Aid Society. That is the Child Protective Services Division of Ontario. I don't want to get into the myriad issues uh, institutionally and structurally with CAS, but police are saying that they're being advised when children are playing to contact, in some cases, Children's Aid Society, as though a parent who brings their child out of their house is in some way abusing their child. Now, this is based on the hearsay of one specific officer, and in a statement to Toronto.com, the Ministry of Children and Social Services said the ministry has not provided specific guidance to Children's Aid Societies to report parents who are not complying with the current stay-at-home order. Although, that doesn't mean that Peterborough County OPP, whose officers are depicted in this video, were not given direction in some way to do that. And again, I, I want to say, I think the officers were being fairly reasonable for most of the exchange. They're saying, we're not here for tickets. I didn't like that they were asking for personal information, but they said, listen, we're just here to educate. They have to respond to calls. I get that. And as I've said, I think frontline officers are very much being put in the line of fire by a lot of these directives and forced to enforce legislation and regulations that they don't particularly agree with. But when I hear that there's some directive somewhere in Ontario, and we're not getting a lot of transparency about what it is, that is saying that parents who might violate stay-at-home orders are to be reported to Children's Aid Society? Forget about the fact here that police have better things to do, children's aid caseworkers have better things to do, and all of a sudden throw this onto them is absolutely ridiculous. But beyond that... If we see around the world that places are reopening, trying to get back to normal, much like we were talking about in the first segment of this program, and in Ontario, we're being told that parents that want to play at a park might, just might, be reported as child abusers, because that's really what's happening. If you're reporting a parent to Children's Aid Society, you're saying that they are being neglectful or abusive to their child. I would say abusive is keeping a kid locked up in a house, not allowed not allowed to see their friends, not allowed to go to school, not allowed to play, not even allowed to play with the neighbor kid at a park outdoors without risking being in violation of the rules. 
And there was a story True North reported on last week that technically police are saying they're allowed to force children to identify themselves if they believe that children are violating the emergency order. So now police are even saying that they have a right to demand children identify themselves. Now, you don't have a piece of physical ID until you're 16. But the whole point of it is that now kids playing has been essentially criminalized in Ontario and in other provinces. And this is not something you can come back from. You know, I, I've said time and time again that it, it's very difficult for a lot of adults to cope with this. Someone who's in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s, it's a, it's a smaller and smaller subset of your life that's affected. That doesn't mean it's not significant, but it's a smaller and smaller portion of your life that's affected the older you get. For kids who are six years old, this is going to be coming up on a third of their life that's been in lockdown. It's going to be all they know, especially since you're not exactly online from zero to, I don't know when you start forming memories that you hold later on in your childhood, but we're talking about a third to half to even more of most children's lives. And to say that, you know what, they should not be allowed to play is criminal. There's no way about it. To say that kids should not be able to play outside is criminal. There's no two ways about it. And for any parent, for any parent to be harassed because they want to give their kid a bit of fresh air. You know, it wasn't that long ago when parents were fighting, fighting to get kids to want to go outside and fighting to get kids to want to play. I was actually, where was I? I was going to catch a plane really early in the morning. This was a couple of months ago. And I had gone through the all-night McDonald's drive through to get a coffee on my way to the airport because it was literally 4 a.m. or 4.30 a.m. or something. And I saw in the parking lot a group of teens in a van of some kind that were all just hanging out. And I looked at them and I could tell that these were the kind who had been out all night just driving around, which was something that we used to do for fun. And I was actually really happy to see it because I was glad that that level of normalcy had been preserved in some way for these teens. Now, I don't know anything about them. Maybe they were catching a flight at 4.30. Probably not. Uh, but, but it looked like they had been out all night and just kind of chilling, doing whatever they want. And I was so happy to see that. Because now they could get pulled over and questioned. Because if someone looks in the car and says, oh, that looks like a mass gathering to me, they could be detained for that if there's suspicion that it's a mass gathering. So we should be, as a society, as a culture, and government, yes, should be doing this as well, trying to preserve as much as is possible of normal life. None of this new normal crap. We should be fighting tooth and nail to reclaim the old normal, and if there are things that need to be adapted, adapt them. But this broad strokes universalist approach to completely obliterate mobility as though someone leaving their home in a car alone is the problem has to stop. We've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. We are back. This is The Andrew Lawton Show. I joked last week that I spent about 20 seconds on the federal budget because that's about all of the interest that I could muster up. And even then, I think that's overstating how interested I was in that 20 seconds. But I will say I found a story of the budget worth talking about because I think of a budget 
as being about numbers. I think of it as being about dollars and cents, about debt, about spending, about deficits, about a little bit of a strategic path forward for a country. But especially now, my question is, can we afford it? And if not, how are we going to get back to something a little bit more austere, something that we can afford? Well, I have missed the mark entirely. I didn't realize the budget wasn't about money. It's actually about remedying racial injustice, according to some advocates. CBC says the federal budget took steps toward racial justice, but activists say more must be done. Advocates for Black, Chinese, South Asian, and other racialized Canadians, the story says, say the federal budget does take a number of positive steps towards building a more inclusive country, but more work needs to be done to address systemic racism in Canada. Now, I would have thought that a budget was one of the areas that could be free from this critical race theory nonsense that we see ubiquitous in every other area of society now, but I was wrong. Much like last week when Kirsten Gillibrand, the United States Senator, said that pretty much anything and everything was infrastructure, childcare is infrastructure, not just bridges, anything is infrastructure. Now in Canada, anything and everything has to be a tool to combat systemic racism. So if you don't put more money into these things in the budget, well, you can't just say that a tax cut is something that benefits everyone. It has to specifically target a racialized Canadian group, according to uh, this story. And I'm looking at this and, and the budget does say there's $11 million to expand the Canadian Race Relations Foundation, $200 million to establish a black-led philanthropic endowment fund to combat anti-black racism and improve social and economic outcomes in black communities. Now, I'd be interested in seeing how this $200 million is going to be spent, especially when there's another $100 million on top of that to support Black-led nonprofit organizations. But this is much like the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Council or Committee's view on having to bolster Black homeownership. You know, ideally, things could support all Canadians. And if there are gaps and shortcomings, identify that, yes. But why do we have to have budgets that segment and segregate the population into ethnic groups when we know that a lot of the metrics of poverty, of privilege, of all of these things are a lot more complex than being just along racial lines? And moreover, I would say that the COVID-19 pandemic has actually been a great equalizer of a lot of things because it's targeting racialized Canadians, it's targeting white Canadians, it's targeting men, it's targeting women. And it's not to say that it hasn't had a class-based uh, distinction in that some of the wealthy people who can work from home have fared better than a lot of middle class or lower income people. But the reality is that a budget in the midst of a pandemic you'd think would not be focused on the social justice warrior ideas that have been ubiquitous throughout so much of the Trudeau government's other initiatives. I mean, this is a government that put uh, gender equality front and center when trying to renegotiate NAFTA with Donald Trump. So I can't say I'm completely and utterly surprised, but I still have to shake my head that now a budget with billions and billions of dollars in deficits that are saddling Canadians of all races, of all ages, for generations to come with more debt. And the big question is, well, you know what? We have to do more in the budget to address racial inequity. We've got to wrap things up here. My thanks to all of you for tuning in to the show. We'll be back in just a couple of days' time with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show, The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.